Autobiography of a Yogi. This is class number one out of 12 with Asha Praver, July 10th, 2001. Welcome, everyone. I'm just delighted that you're all here to do this. I am also. I did, uh, after doing Master Swami's book on uh, Hindu Way of Awakening, and then we did God Alone. Then we went into money and marriage, which are all very, very fine and interesting, but I'm kind of glad to be back um, into something a little less practical or a little less sort of application-oriented and more into the essence. It is always an adventure to read this book. doesn't matter how many times you've read it, whether it's the first or the 30th or the 50th time. It just you start reading it again, and there's just always something new and this time particularly somehow uh, when I read these first three chapters I could just somehow imagine what it must feel like to a person who's reading it for the first time. You know, it's just such a, a stunning story. Um, the way that we'll work with this is pretty simple. I passed out um, these notes last week and we'll have them again for you this week. I must say these are all notes I made in 1992. My version still has my date on them. Maybe yours does or doesn't. Um, so it's not like these were just the fruit of just recent reading. And all I really tried to do in the notes was just sort of summarize the main points. And in some cases, in fact, as we get more into some of the later chapters, some of the questions were more provocative. But mostly it's just to sort of help us remember. So I, I won't necessarily read from them. It's just to help you also understand, pick up the main points. Um, we can do this in several ways. I can just ramble on, which I will, and also... Um, I'm happy to have you ask questions, as we've always done in these classes. If some particular aspect of the chapter you really want to have elucidated or struck you as important or something like that, we'll pause from time to time and work with that. We are doing three, approximately three chapters a week, um, just because we only have 12 weeks. When we did this class before in 1992, it took us two years because we just did a chapter at a time. It's, there's something like 48 chapters. Must have taken us longer than two years, come to think of it. But that was, uh, we just went on every Monday with a whole different world then. But we went on for a really long time. And it was really great doing it that way. So this will be a little rushed, and plus we're only doing some of it. But I think it'll still be worth doing. You think so? Are there any uh, questions or comments or thoughts before we launch in? Things, this class is recorded despite the curse of the mummy. We will record it. So if you miss any of the classes, you can get a tape. And also, we do have in advance which chapters we're reading each week. So if you just want to drop in and out, of course, you can catch up that way. All right. I'm not on the loudspeaker. Were you wanting me to? No, I'm not. So I just am going to have to speak up. The, they couldn't, we couldn't get the system working. So there's no microphone. I'm just recording off the little mic here. So I'll speak up as loud as I can. So if you really lose me, just raise your hand. One of the reasons we come in here is so that I'll have the loudspeaker, but there you have it. Um, when I was meditating, uh, reflecting on what these early chapters are about, there's so, there's so much that's so interesting because, of course, Master wrote it according to divine inspiration, not by calculation. Um, I know when Swamiji does or writes things and so on, he... Um, doesn't necessarily know when he starts exactly where he's going. He just knows intuitively every piece of it is correct. So some of the patterns are sort of there after you're done. 
And I was reflecting on the first and second chapter of this book or about two things that are really fundamental to Yogananda's entire mission. And that is Divine Mother. And the second is the, the perfectly balanced householder life. Um, bearing in mind that um, Yogananda came to really launch a, a new age, a new age of spirituality and literally the changing of the yugas on the planet. Um, many of you know, and it's a footnote later on in this book, talking about this 24,000-year cycle of ascending and descending ages on planet Earth and our having just begun in 1799, 1800, the beginning, the sort of introductory part, and now we're more well into it, Dwapara Yuga, which is the age of energy. And we've come out of the age of matter, which is Kali Yuga, and we're into the age of energy. And more than that, we're on an ascending cycle. The last master to influence the West, which is really Jesus, was in Kali Yuga going down, the materialistic age and getting worse, which is really a pretty grim prospect. I think probably a lot of us were there then. It wasn't grim for this reason. In Kali Yuga going down, you got to just say, forget the whole thing and just walk out into the desert and just go into a cave because society as a whole was just on such a low level from the point of view of refinement and spiritual consciousness that there was no hope of reconciling um, a, true, a true dedication to God with anything that resembled normal involvement in society. So that's why the whole tradition of uh, Christianity starting, thank you, starting with the Desert Fathers who just, like St. Anthony and the others, just went out as far as they could from civilization. The story of St. Anthony is just truly remarkable as he talks about he went, you know, to this cave which was so remote and then people found him so he walked farther into the desert and he found a more remote cave and then farther into the desert and he found a more remote one and finally went down into an, an old Egyptian tomb and spent uh, another 10 or 20 years there. I mean, he spent 60, 70, 80, I don't know how many years, but decades just by himself meditating. I mean, that was like his sadhana because it was Kali Yuga descending. It was just coming to pieces. He actually only came out of that when word came to him that Christians were being um, crucified and thrown to the lions and martyred in many other ways. And also he came out of it because there was a big controversy in the church as to the true nature of Jesus' incarnation. And they called St. Anthony out to help solve it. Because bear in mind, everything is disintegrating. People's ability to perceive subtle truth is getting worse and worse. So you have Jesus come, who is a fully realized master. Now, all I'm talking about when I say people's consciousness is I'm talking about the planet as a whole. You know, when Jesus was crucified, it wasn't anything special that Jesus was crucified. That's basically how they got rid of anyone that they didn't like. And people were crucified on the open highway. That's where they were crucified so everybody else could see by example. Now, barbaric as this age may be in certain ways, it's just not likely that they're going to crucify people along El Camino. It's just the planet as a whole has gone up from that. But that was just common. That was just the way life was run because it was just a very, very gross age. So when Anthony was called back, there was this controversy about whether or not Jesus was the full incarnation of the divine. 
or whether he was just a man. And there was this huge, the, they, they called him to this service, and it had to do with the recitation of the creed. And when the creed was starting to be recited, the way the story is told, pandemonium broke out, and both sides of the controversy started shouting at each other. And Anthony stood up in the middle and simply said, I have seen him. And his power of his direct perception of, and simply said, I have seen him. And his power of his direct perception of Christ was so strong that it entirely silenced the controversy, and the controversy ended on the side of, of Christ as the divine. When I was talking in an unrelated way to a friend of mine who's an, a priest, an Episcopal priest, about certain aspects of Jesus' teaching, actually what it was was I noticed in a rereading of the Bible that Jesus had all his followers collected into small communities. And it occurred to me that Jesus must have taught intentional communities because that's what they all did. Just, I mean, just as Yogananda taught the concept of intentional communities. So I asked my uh, uh, priest friend about it, and he started explaining to me about uh, they thought the world was going to end, and they got together because they thought it was the end of the world, and he started talking about various, basically complete misunderstandings of Jesus' uh, true message, and about how the Christian teaching had evolved over several centuries. And I said, you know, that's not possible. Jesus was a fully realized master. Time didn't have to pass for it to get better and better. In fact, what happened is it gradually got destroyed because it was Kali Yuga going down. And he sort of got this wonderful look on his face that I'm accustomed to and just sort of, you know, he has a divinity degree from Yale. And he just talked about sort of what's happened to him since he got involved with Ananda. <laughs> he didn't mean it negatively. He just meant, you know, it really looks different from this point of view, meaning from the way Paramahansa Yogananda has resurrected it because he described his teaching as the second coming of Christ. Some people wonder if that really literally means that he is Christ returned, and some people think he might be. But in any case, he's the restoration of the true teachings of Christianity, and that was his job. He, uh, Master said that, that Babaji and Christ commissioned him, you know, from the East and the West, to bring back the original teachings of, of Krishna and the original teachings of Christianity, and to restore to the West especially, but really to the whole planet, the, 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 the teachings that have been lost, because they had to, you know, they've all gone through this long, dark tunnel of Kali Yuga, in which they've sort of been squeezed a lot by the, the, the cosmic inability of the planet to hold it together. You know, the, the institutions, authorities, all the different things that happen. Great souls are great souls, and they appear in the midst of all of this. They just do different things. When Jesus is, you know, closest, most dynamic followers, there wasn't much point in trying to create something for society at that point, because society was just heading downhill. So what they did is they withdrew into the monasteries and created it um, and kept it alive through the Dark Ages by being isolated from the culture. Now we're into Dwapara Yuga. Now we're just coming out of all of that, and that's what you see all around you. It's manifested in every um, attitude and every, everything that you see. Swamiji, once sitting in a room like this, said, you know, virtually everything in this room 
uh, wasn't, would, no one could have created it, you know, 150 years ago. Just all the, all the synthetic materials, the way the building is constructed, just probably most of the clothes we're wearing, just everything. It just what, couldn't have been done because there's just been a revolution in a very, very recent period of time. So oftentimes a master comes to help make these transitions because there's a lot of inertia from the past and there's a lot of lack of clarity as to where we're actually going. Krishna came when it was going from Dwapara Yuga into Kali Yuga. It was on its way down. The, 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 the age that we're just entering, because there's a circle that goes like this and it descends on one side and ascends on the other and then is even across like that. It just depends on which way it's heading. So, so Krishna was in Dwapara Yuga heading down into Kali Yuga and he was having to teach people what it was going to be like in the next age because even then avatars are required. And one of the things that Krishna had to do was, for example, in the great war of the Mahabharata, when Arjuna and his brothers were fighting against the dark force, um, Krishna was guiding them in what they had to do. And there was a very powerful warrior named Drona. And Drona was so powerful, he'd been the guru of, of all the, both sides, because they were cousins. And Drona was so powerful, he was just wreaking havoc to Arjuna and their army. And Krishna says, we have to get rid of Drona, and he's too powerful for us to defeat him directly. And he said, the only way we can defeat Drona, this is Krishna saying this, is that if he believes his son, whose name was Ashwatthama, if he believes his beloved son has been killed, he will lose heart for the fight and he won't fight anymore. So he went to Yudhishthira, who was the oldest of the righteous, of the righteous side of Arjuna and his brothers. And Yudhishthira was so pure, they say, that his chariot was always two inches off the ground because he was such a pure soul, he didn't quite come all the way to earth. And Krishna told Yudhishthira that he would have to lie to Drona. He would have to tell a lie to Drona and tell him that his son was killed, otherwise the good side could not win. And this was so horrifying to everyone that an honorable person like Yudhishthira would have to lie, never lied in his life, and that Krishna, the Lord himself, was telling him to do it. So Yudhishthira had to go and say to Drona, Ashwatthama is dead. And then he said to himself, because they had killed an elephant of the same name, the elephant. <laughs> but nonetheless, Yudhishthira's chariot hit the ground and ever thereafter it was on the ground. But they said to Krishna, how, why do you have us lie? He said, the age is getting darker, he said, and darkness is so strong that we have to use a little bit of the techniques of the dark to defeat it. It's just a new age. And then there were several other instances I won't go into in which Arjuna, Krishna himself did dishonorable things unheard of before Kali Yuga. But, but Krishna was setting the tone. I mean, these are uh, maybe, maybe uh, apocryphal stories, maybe myth mythological stories, but the point being, the time was changing. Yogananda came, fortunately for us, at the time when it's going up. And so he's trying to break with this book and with his whole mission, he's trying to break pretty much all of our subconscious habits and thoughts about spirituality. He's setting an entire new tone. And we just very, very vaguely understand the sort of degree of that revolution. And I watch myself and I watch many of you all and other friends of mine over all these years. We just keep carrying our subconscious story forward. 
You know, we carry our Catholicism, we carry our Judaism, we carry our atheism, we carry our materialism. We just keep carrying it forward. And only little by little can we even slightly grasp sort of the magnitude of the revolution that's being asked of us. Now, there's many, many levels which, you know, we can hardly begin, and we will just, just as we go through these chapters, touching it. But one of the profound and powerful things Yogananda brought, which is a keynote of his entire mission, is God as Divine Mother. Now, it's very important to appreciate that because it's so, it is so fundamental. Very often, um, newcomers here will protest. I don't get this protest nearly as much as I used to. Maybe the sort of mood has passed. Why are there no women on the altar? You know, because they'll look at the pictures of the masters and they'll think they're all men. Of course, they're no more men than women, but they're just, there they are. And they do look sort of more male for the most part. And probably if you actually looked at them, they had real bodies and they were male bodies. But it's all a, a delusion to the soul anyway. It doesn't matter. But even without, you know, the presence of women on the altar, this particular teaching is entirely dedicated to the ideal of a, of a motherly image of the divine. But that's not really about gender, lest sort of the women in the crowd feel he's an, it's an affirmation of feminism. It's not that at all. What he's talking about is an intimate, personal relationship with the divine. And there really is no mother per se or father per se. It's just our own mind's way of understanding sort of what that message is that's so far beyond everything. And so we have this uh, uh, thought. Yogananda said in his own voice, we have a tape of him saying, worship God as mother because the mother is much closer than the father. And then he also says, I love this phrase, he said, pray to God as mother. He can't resist you when you do that. Right? <laughs> which is giving you the idea that it really makes no difference whether we're talking he or she, that pronoun is not the point. But part of what Yogananda was trying to bring to this age is for us to understand, he called his message, his mission, self-realization. And it, it was a very well-chosen, deliberately chosen, just part of the whole picture he's trying to put across. That it's really, it's not about institutions, it's not about priestly intervention, it's not about pujas and ceremonies and rites and rituals or indulgences or confessions or anything like that. It's just about ourselves realizing within ourselves what the infinite is. And yes, he started an institution because his teaching is so alien to the Western soil that it was necessary to bring it into some clear focus, but it's the, the only reality of any institutional form is to strengthen the individual's relationship with God. And so the progression also of Western spirituality from Judaism to Christianity to self-realization, which I believe, and Yogananda himself said, as the centuries pass, that will be the way the progression is perceived. Or maybe, in fact, everything else will die away. I don't know. It's no accident, you know, here we sit in what used to be a Catholic church. And it's sort of like, to us, it was merely a real estate deal. We needed property. The property was for sale. We bought it. It's so wonderful. It used to be a church. It's been holy for a long time. But I remember, I think of, going to Assisi and going to the, the main square in Assisi, Italy, 
And there's this wonderful church which has images of Mother Mary in it. It's a little church dedicated to Mary, a small church. But on the front are these very old columns. It's, it's a ruin of some very ancient building. And everyone refers to the building as the Minerva Temple. It was actually at one point a temple dedicated to Minerva that now houses the shrine to Mary. The Catholics bought it from the Minervans, obviously, <laughs> you know, in some real estate deal at some point. And, and you hear all this about, you know, this, this sect took over the holy spots of that one. And I'm sure there's a certain woo-woo spirituality to it, but a certain amount of it is just what happens. Because without drawing too strong a point on it, because I'm sure the Catholics wouldn't like me to hear it, but you know, they had eight parishes in Palo Alto. I believe now they have one because they can't support eight parishes anymore. The main secret that they don't tell people is they don't have enough priests because otherwise they could just keep them open. What do they care? But there aren't enough priests. And so they can't support all this. So they've had to just let it go. And it's not really their fault. It's just that there's a changing of the guard taking place. You know, the Catholicism represents above all monasticism and uh, priestly authority and institutions, all sorts of things that are not the same as self-realization. You know, that, that definition of Sanatan Dharma, of eternal truth, is going down, self-realization is going up. I mean, it's a, quote, coincidence that we're here, but not really. You know, this really is the next wave. And just like the, the, Christ, the Catholics took over the Minerva Temple, it'll just keep sort of going like that. Someday, somewhere, if this building still stands, you know, something else will move in. Who knows? Maybe it'll fall down before that time. But, but the progression from Judaism to Christianity to self-realization, what, uh, what Moses, who was an avatar, brought to the Jewish people was the concept of God as the judge and the divine law. And it was that the Jews were a, a, an enslaved people who were freed by the will of God and then had to learn how to live in righteous relationship and what they needed. And Moses himself said, for your hard-heartedness, these rules were written. I mean, the Jews were, they write their own scripture, were stiff-necked people, they say. And so the laws had to be really exact because that's, the, that's what they had to hear. When Jesus came, and Jesus was a Jew, and he was a Jewish rabbi, and he was just teaching Judaism, he said, God is your father. You know, if you ask of your father a loaf of bread, will he give you a stone? So we progressed from the hard-hearted judge to the fact that he was our father, but he was still our father. And the father's a bit exacting and has that somewhat distant feeling. Now, these images, understand, are just given to us so that we can kind of get the feeling. Uh, father was as far as we could go from judge. He's not your judge. It's not about the law. He's your own parent. You are the offspring of the infinite. And that has worked for a long time. That did sort of scooch it all forward quite a lot. And then we get to now. But now we're not content even with that. What we want is an intimate, personal relationship. And so the most intimate and the most personal that we know is the relationship between a mother and a child. And so Yogananda starts his incarnation. And these things happen all very deliberately. When I asked Swami why there are no women on the altar, you know, why, why didn't any of these masters come in female bodies? His answer was very interesting. He said, well, given the fact that the masters can choose their body, they're not compelled by karma like the rest of us, and they all happen to choose male bodies, you know, there is something in it. One thing in it, quite simply, is to be an avatar is rather a masculine profession. 
because the very nature of it is world changing. And so the consciousness of it is male oriented. Even when great saints um, like Mother Mary or Anandamoy Ma assume female bodies, their mission is very different. You know, Mary was Jesus' spiritual partner, but she was totally a, a, a non-force in an external way. And her role ever since has just been the interceding mother. Anandamoy Ma, there's not an avatar, but a very great saint, she just did nothing. Nothing. She just sat, gave darshan. And every so often she'd get up and go somewhere else and do it. And people built ashrams and published magazines and founded organizations, and she would speak so quaintly of your magazine and your ashrams and, you know, your organization. And one of the temples fell down and everyone was so upset. And she says, oh, just the poor building, it was tired. You know, I mean, she just couldn't care less. She was just feminine. She just radiated divine love, uplifted the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, but in a feminine way. And whereas Yogananda comes on the scene with all this, you know, outward moving male force. But he comes, but his message, what is his message? His message is the Divine Mother. Isn't it, isn't it just fascinating? Because that's what we need. Now, I'm spending a lot of time on this because it's very, very important for us to, to really grasp this. Because we come to our spiritual life in this particular time very much influenced by Judeo-Christian tradition. So we're either caught in the judge, or maybe we've gotten as far as the father. And if we've been raised Catholic, maybe we've already gotten all the way to mother, to Mary, which some people, you know, manage to make it all the way to there. But it's very important that from the first words, the first pages of Swami's, of Master's book, it's all about mother. It's about this beautiful family scene that he lived in, and this sort of perfect balance that his parents expressed in their home life. Because the other theme, another theme, that is part of Dwapara Yuga, is this isn't about the monasteries anymore. And that's why, with all due respect, the Catholics are having so much trouble holding their priests, and, and people are leaving the monasteries in droves. But it's not, interestingly, for the most part, because they want to be more worldly. It's because they want to be more spiritual in many cases, and they somehow don't feel that that life removed from the flow of life is a more spiritual life anymore. Whereas hundreds of years ago when it started, it was the obvious and only choice because the world was just too impossible to be involved in. You couldn't do both. But now there's just this intuitive sense that it's about um, integrating spirituality into everyday life. And so, insofar as the monasteries are even showing that, you know, the uh, religious are, are, are taking off their habits, looking like regular people, living among people, doing social service work. It's the same cosmic call in a different way. Let's get involved. But Yogananda came, among other things, but one of the messages of his teaching was World Brotherhood Colonies, which is the opportunity to have a completely devoted spiritual life in the context of ordinary family life. And he talked also about, you know, restoring the sort of ancient teachings of Krishna. And the traditions of the ancient rishis in the ideal times, they all had wives and families. You know, the, the separation uh, between normal life and spiritual life was not there. That came later when the age got darker and darker. And as the masters put it, mankind's mind became so dense that he couldn't hold both material reality and spirituality simultaneously. It had to divide. 
Okay, now we're becoming more subtle and we can, we can bring it back together again. So Yogananda brings his, starts his story, and of course it's just a biography, but he starts his story, I mean, so it's a natural place to begin is what I mean, but just sort of with this picture of this ideal family life. And it's very, uh, just a few pages, but you know, a master's words have a lot of power. And he describes how his mother was, he describes how his father was, he described how they interacted, she, he describes how the, his mother raised them. You know, my bittersweet first early acquaintanceship with the Mahabharata, as my mother would call upon the stories as needed to discipline me. And of course, it's a sweet story, but nothing in there is by accident. He's also sort of showing us, you know, this is the way to raise our children, is to remind them of the highest truth from an early age and to relate everything that happens to them, even as little youngsters, to high principles instead of it just merely being the whimsy of the parent. You know, show, show them how it should be. He talks about his mother's extraordinary generosity and, and just how open-hearted and loving she was to everyone. And yet he also gives so much credence in a very sweet way to the sort of male-female balance that his parents expressed. You know, and I love that. There's just so many classic lines. In the gesture of vanquished husbands everywhere, he pulled out his wallet, you know? And my maternal uncle showed up and whispered to my father, wisdom garnered no doubt from the ages. You know, now, just little touches like that, but it, it, it really puts in perspective and in a very touching way the whole human drama, doesn't it? You know, he's really showing us. We think we're so individual in all these experiences. We think this is just happening to us. And his parents were almost archetypes you know, of male, female, and family life. And then he throws in even little touches like, as a gesture of respect to my father, my mother dressed us all up every afternoon to welcome my father home. And we're talking eight children, okay? You know, she dressed us all up to welcome my standing of the of what they owe to the father for all that he's doing to support the family. All of those little gestures and just a simple statement like, as a, as to welcome my father home. You know, every day, this is what she did. And then, of course, you have this other undercurrent in this wonderful first chapter of this relationship between Master and his mother. And in the vision that Master eventually had, which I'm skipping ahead a little bit, you know, talking about his mother dying and how grief-stricken he was, and he talks about how he was unconsoled until he had the image of Divine Mother. And then Divine Mother says to him, and these are like sort of the the secret teachings almost in Autobiography of a Yogi. I sent other mothers to nurture you many times, but this time I came myself. Now that's a very simple statement that Master's mother was a, an, an avatar herself, an incarnation of Divine Mother. You know, what, did, what is really meant by that? Swamiji was reading, in reading that a number of years ago, proposed the very simple thought that the time will come when Master's mother will be the incarnated feminine form that people will relate to, which, of course, is an exact parallel of what happened in the mission of Jesus. Because it wasn't immediately that Mary was recognized for the divine force that she is. And I say that simply, it's a simple truth. You can see through the centuries what an extraordinary role Mary has played um, in the whole mission of Christianity in many ways you know, she the one, she's the one who keeps coming back. We have these ap uh, apparitions of Mother Mary, and 
so many situations, um, and you don't have the same examples of Jesus appearing in the same way that you have Mary appearing. Mary was, the mother is closer than the father. I saw this marvelous documentary. I don't, I, I just, I saw it up at Anand. I don't know where it comes from. And it was apparitions of Mother Mary all over the world. And there was this one group of uh, African girls, like high school girls, and it was like Mary was due. She, was, she appeared to them on a regular basis, and it was like time for her to come. And so there were cameras just trained on the faces of these girls waiting. And Mary wasn't there, and they were just talking. And faster than you could watch it with your eye, the vision suddenly came, and, and the girls just turned into something else. It was, it was an astonishing thing to watch because they were themselves and then they were transfixed. And there was no transition. It was like instantaneously they just went to another dimension. It was so compelling, you couldn't doubt for a split second. No, no person could, by their own will, create such a transition. So there is this very interesting question because they are all men on the altar. When we finish rebuilding, we're going to put Gyanamata's picture over here. Gyanamata was Yogananda's most advanced woman disciple because she is there. We have two self-realized masters declared so by master himself, Rajasi and Gyanamata. We want to put both their pictures there because they're saints of our line and no harm having a female face there since such ones do exist. But also there is a need uh, in, in the human heart you know, for women to look to women and for men to look to women. And it's part of the picture of what's happening in Dwapara Yuga. If we see anything that's happening, we see this complete transformation of the gender relationships. You know, so it's inevitable that there'll be this need for a female form. And, and Master has hinted, he hasn't made it explicit, but he's hinted that his mother has that role to play. I, was, I have shared with you before that in the light of that, uh, David had this beautiful um, picture that he took of a framed picture of Master's mother in uh, Master's boyhood home in India. And so we printed it all up and we were going to pass it out to people as we often do at Christmas time. And I was trying to write something for the back and I couldn't think what to say. And I called Swamiji and I said, I can't think what to say. And his answer was, it's not time yet. You know? It's not timely to sort of declare this in such a public way. He said, just don't do it yet. Now, I don't know whether that means... Because it was really interesting. It was like I was blocked from being able to do it. I just couldn't think how to articulate it in a way that worked. It's sort of creeping in. Maybe it'll be centuries. Who knows? Some great saint of the future will have a revelation and that's what it'll become. Who knows? You can't really say. But all of this talk at the beginning of the book about Master's extraordinarily close connection with the woman who birthed him and how, how beautifully in a feminine way she nurtured him. You just get this picture of this ideal motherhood. And yet she was deeply dedicated to spiritual life, in fact, entirely and only dedicated to spiritual life. So um, oh, then you just sort of have this whole story about the whole family's devotion and this, you know, this story of Lahiri Mahashaya, and as, uh, we always joke about it. Sometimes we recommend that people read The Path before they read Autobiography of a Yogi because Lahiri Mahashaya materializes in a wheat field on page 8 of Autobiography of a Yogi. <laughs> And page eight is a little early for some people, for people to be materializing in wheat fields. So sometimes it's better if you start with all of Swami's dilemmas as a Westerner trying to, to sort of figure out how to be a spiritual person. 
But you also have just immediately this sort of picture of how his parents' life was completely formed by the relationship to the guru. Because the first sentence of Autobiography of a Yogi is about the guru. You know, the, the characteristic feature of Indian culture has always been the search for eternal verities and the concomitant disciple-guru relationship. And that, that wonderful sentence, which I may have quoted close to exactly, nonetheless, it's telling you also that this book is about masters. You know, this book is about guru. Because the other reality that Yogananda has brought is just this understanding that discipleship is the avenue. It doesn't necessarily mean discipleship to this line, although, of course, he is in many ways the defining force of this time. But the understanding in that sentence is so perfect because he's saying, you, if you search for eternal truth, you will inevitably come to the disciple-guru relationship because you cannot have eternal truth without also having that. And it's just, you know, just right there in the first sentence and there's just no way around it. And so then he just follows that theme right through. What is the defining reality of his parents' life? Early on, they met this great master, Lahiri Mahashaya, and from that point, that's what they did, and that's all they've done since. And then the little photograph of the guru. So we have the picture of how are we to be when we want to be devoted. He talks about his, his mother's relationship to this photograph and how it lovingly traveled with them from home to home. You know, this is just a picture, but to, to the disciple... The picture of the master when you're not with the master is, is a holy object. Lovingly, from home to home, she took that. And, and, the, and the faith that they developed in that very photograph to be the instrument of the master when uh, Yogananda himself, as a young boy, was so sick. And his mother said, you know, bow to the picture of the master. And he was too weak even to lift his hands, but bow mentally, she says. And she had this absolute faith in the Guru's power to be able to do that. And so the theme, and of course Yogananda was miraculously healed in a flash of light that was visible to his mother by the power of the picture, and he was able just to stand up. because, And then the mother's devotion to her Guru for healing her son in that way. So you have this whole, it doesn't waste any time telling you also that the way this age is going is this is an age of devotion. This is an age of the mother. This is an age of discipleship. This is an age of devotion. I mean, extravagantly expressed. Yogananda talked about every morning with his mother. You know, they would do these ceremonies. And then after his mother died, he would make his pilgrimage to the altar that he'd made under a tree. It's all right from the heart. You know, I've been, I was reading a, a, a book that someone wanted me to look at. Of, uh, it's a very fine book. I can't remember the name of it. It's a bestseller. It's written by a woman, and she's a Buddhist, a Tibetan Buddhist. It's a very good book. But it's Buddhism, which is a fine teaching, but it's, it's certainly not after my heart. But it isn't devotional. I read through it, and it's all, all the things you can do with your mind. You can think like this, you can think like that, you can think like this. And, I don't, and it, it's meditation, it's true teaching, there's nothing false at all about it. But it's not about devotion. And, and you read Yogananda's book, what is it about? It's all about devotion, just right from the start, and, and, and a, a passionate kind of love. You know, he has that love for his mother, and his mother, of course, is to him the Divine Mother, and who knows what attunement on you know, profound levels they were having together, but such an extravagant kind of love that when he, his mother uh, is sick, 
and he's on his way to see her and he believes that she might have died and he's going to throw himself under the train because his mother has died you know this is not this is not a person who holds back right you know this is a person who has given his whole heart to everything now why would yogananda tell such a story you know you would think oh he should be detached he was a master after all and on one level of course he didn't really this is a fairy tale on many levels you know interestingly yogananda's original title for this book was the yogi christ of india and it's really sort of interesting if you really look at it as if it were called the yogi christ of india and read especially the table of contexts with that name you can see that's really what it is he just lists all these different people he met master mahashaya the levitating saint the tiger swami anandamoyi ma it's like the yogi christ of india is what he's really describing and so in a certain sense the book makes more sense with that title than the one that it's ended up with autobiography of a yogi because it's really not as much about him as it is about who he met and he plays a game with the reader and he makes it seem as if he was just some little devotee yogananda told swami ji that in fact almost all the masters he went to tried to learn from him and he just doesn't put that forth even chota mahashaya which he says is what they call him yogananda translates that as little sir it doesn't mean little sir it means little great one mahashaya means great soul so that they would recognize him as a great soul and that's what they would call him you know uh, those who had the sensitivity to perceive it so when he talks about throwing himself under the train on one level yes and and on one level you can also see why he would his his mother was divine mother incarnate in other words with her he could be completely himself because their consciousness was equal and unified right and everything else in this world this is what he describes i could not bear the thought of living in this world without her presence but what he's really talking about is that she she gave to him divine mother's love and what he couldn't bear to live without was divine mother's love it was personified in her but the the willingness to throw himself under the train is not just sort of a foolish suicide it's just his statement of the fact that what what matters in life except divine mother's love and of course he was saved from doing so by his uncle and so on and the story progresses but then even still with with his mother having this level of consciousness she says i will not be happy until i behold the face of ananta's bride and you and you have this this again this sort of um acceptance of the divine leela just this this sort of willingness to accept that well this is what it's like here she is this great soul and yet she's passionately devoted to seeing the bride of her son and making the wedding and it talks about even the extent you know the english scottish and indian orchestras were all arranged the big cutouts of the elephants and the camels those of us who've been to india it's just so charming the strings of lights you can just see the elephant that the sananta would ride to his bride's house i mean despite the fact that it was clearly a divine leela if we're going to play it we're going to play it correctly right and so she, so she gives us permission to enter in fully into the spirit of life and in the next chapter when yogananda wants to go on this trip to varanasi and he asks his uh father for the tickets and he talks about how he loves the excitement for him of getting on the train to going to a new place 
and how excited he was as a boy, and then he puts a parenthetical remark, and he still is. You know, just excited always to go to new places. Now, all of these are profound teachings because we get into this grave misunderstanding about what spiritual life is really like. And we think, well, if I'm spiritual, I have to be a little jaded, I have to be a little held back, I can't be too enthusiastic. It's, after all, it's just a dream, and we'll see one sunrise, seen them all, you know, kind of attitude. And Yogananda talks about just, I'm still very excited every time I go to a new place. You know, and he wrote this book in 1948. He's just like, this is Divine Mother's game. Let's play it to the hilt. You know, this is exactly how it ought to be played. Um, there was another, um, it was later in the chapter, but just talk about little phrases that come out to you that are so great. Um, he talks about how his his, he started thinking about spiritual life and going off to the Himalayas and he became so inspired he started holding forth to his friend and he said, my friend was not listening attentively to my own eloquence but I was in totally enraptured with it <laughs> which for some reason struck me very strongly you know? <laughs> but it's just such charming phrases like that you know, and it also gives you a sense of just how light hearted he was you know, he's writing this very serious book, but he just puts in a complete um, just sense of his own reality. One of the very hardest things to grasp is to sort of see the master for the power he has and yet also recognize that it's, a, it's an intimate power. It's a natural power. The greater a master, the, the more natural his power. Um, some of you uh, may have related to the fact that we were we, there was an article that came out in the Los Angeles New Times, which is basically the fish wrapper that comes out down there once a week. And uh, it, it, we thought it was going to be a story about the battle between SRF and Ananda. The repo reporter got sidetracked into this man who, uh, whose mother always told him that he was Yogananda's son. And so it's a whole story. It's a fascinating and terrible story, just sort of all written up like that. What's the end point of it? The end point of it is that Swamiji wrote a re rebuttal to it. You can find all of this if you go onto the web, to the LA New Times. Both are on the web. The rebuttal's on the web now, at the, on that site. Or you can come to the community and read it. But in Swami's rebuttal, this is the main point that I was really trying to make, Swami tells a couple of stories about Yogananda that are so just exceedingly real and one of them is about how it's about yellow journalism. And one of them, in one of them, Yogananda talks about how two women reporters with very low-cut blouses were sent by the editor to sort of see if they could entice Yogananda, even as Yogananda put it, to glance downward. And so this is a story that Swami tells about. Master tells this story, and he talks about you know how they had the low-cut blouses and that they that. They were, they, it was clear they were trying to entice me, and I just stared right into their eyes, you know, and I never left my eyes like that. And then the editor later admitted that they were trying to get him to glance, and this is the word, at their cleavage. Okay, right? I have to admit, I thought to myself, would Master use the word cleavage? <laughs> <laughs> and, and even I, I mean, yeah, I say even I, because I put out a great deal of effort to, to be real about it. There was just a little part of me that just stopped for a moment. And I realized what an incredibly um, uh, small vision we have of these things. And Swamiji, in, in many ways, without emphasizing at the point, had sort of said that Yogananda is very, was a very strong male person. 
And he was not at all inhibited. He was not even slightly prudish. He was not uh, put off by anything. He was just a very direct and straightforward person. You know, he's just, he wasn't a, he wasn't a little tiny thing. He was a great big man who, who easily encompassed everything in his world. And so the little bits and pieces, even the extravagance of throwing yourself under the train, or when the, the vision of his mother came, and he speaks to his father, and he says, you know, if we don't leave now, you'll never forgive yourself. And then he says, and nor will I forgive you. And then he says, and it was years before I did. You know, and it's very, very powerful statements of the will and the determination and the absolute commitment to what he felt was true, you know, that you see even from a little boy. And so it's important for us to really just tune into those energies and not just gloss over them, which you can easily do when we just read this through you and just sort of gloss over it and you think, oh, well, he was mad at his dad, you know. Right. Let me think what else he says. Oh, yes, also in that first chapter, we have the whole story about the kites and Master's power just to make a statement and have it come true, you know, by the power of my will. And so he, you know, even before, well, I guess it's after page eight, but, you know, Yogananda just lays out for us what he expects of us, you know, what he expects us to be able to do. We need to be able to say to Divine Mother, you will bring me whatever I want and it shall come. You know, I will manifest by the power of my word something on my arm. And he's not talking about himself. He's talking about self-realization and what it is that we can expect. And, and just he shows right from the start, you know, this is the power that we're working with so that when we enter into this, we'll know what we're entering into. Oh, all right. <laughs> um, are there any thoughts or comments or questions? I might take a short break. That sort of seems like put the... <laughs> I think that was the cue to stop for a few minutes. Yes, Meryl. Uh-huh. Well, later on he talks about Nalini, remember, who was so skinny that her husband didn't love her, and so he helped her. He talked about Roma being like a, a, a mother to him. He talks about Bishnu becoming a great... Bishnu became a very famous physical culturist. Bishnu... His brother Vishnu, and Vishnu was very famous, especially in Japan and also in India. There's pictures when you go there. Um, you have the Vishnu's gym, uh, physical culture gym is right nearby. And you have a picture of Vishnu lying under elephants and things like that. I mean, he was a very famous physical culturist. Um, Sananda, his brother, became an artist. Um, I don't know whether that covers them all or not, but yeah. Sananda's not mentioned too much. It just refers to an artist. Yes. He doesn't say it was his brother. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're all talked about in Mejita. And didn't one of his sisters die? Yeah, Uma died. It really his um his main disciples was not his family. Although the, you know they are devoted to him, but but he left his family. <coughs> so that's one of the reasons he doesn't talk too much about. Them. None of them really went with him. <coughs> he just went off by himself. That's not fair because many of them were quite devoted to him, but well he he was making the story good, that's how Swami puts it. Yeah. I mean because but also he was quite humble. So it wouldn't be in his nature to say, Of course I knew I could do it. It would be in his nature to be devotional toward the divine. But he he, he overstated it. 
So it's not, you can't take that as a real um, inner revelation, you know, that he was genuinely startled, because he, he talks in the same chapter or in the next one about sitting on his bed and having visions of the infinite and seeing himself in the Himalayan caves and being totally conscious as an infant, you know, and memories of being a yogi in the past. So it doesn't all com- combine exactly with, oh my gosh, look what I've done, you know. <laughs> it's, it, it. But he played the role of a child. And so probably with his sister Roma, he played the role of a child and was just a boy doing it. He helped to make a make a bridge to us too. Yeah. To yeah, he has to. Yeah. Any other comments or thoughts, questions? Okay, let's take a break. Just take five or ten minutes. Ten minutes. Be back here at a quarter-ish. Ten of. I had a couple of questions during the break. Um, and I wanted to answer at least one, at least one, because I've already forgotten the second one. No, I, it was what Barbara asked me, and I will remember it in a moment. Oh yes, um, Luthia asked the obvious question, which everyone asks, and we ask over and over again: If he was God, realized what was the story? You know, how does this work? And the question actually becomes: What is the nature of an avatar? And it, uh, it's really, it's really good. There's a few sort of. Uh, ways of describing it that I know are just ways of describing it, but they do sort of help get the picture. Um, And this is the way I think about it. All of us, let's say there's this big wall of, 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 of inability to perceive between the astral world and the world of spirit and between the material world where we live. I think it is sort of like that. This man who died of cancer described the fact that just a couple of days before he died, he realized that there was a border, like an edge, to this world he'd been living in. And on the other side of it, there was a completely other dimension. And it was so confusing to him, so startling to him, because as soon as he noticed the border, he realized it had always been there, but for some reason he hadn't noticed it until just this time. And he was saying it was sort of like, now it was just out of his sight. But he knew it was just right there, like just on the other side of the head of his bed. And he died within a couple of days because the veil had parted and he'd just seen that this, this world is just an edge and I just step over to the other side. So thinking that there's some kind of a, a wall that divides, all of us, this, I'm on the astral side now, all of us are astral beings and we're having such a wonderful time manifesting as, as this book describes, you know, astral fruits and changing our garments and changing our forms and just sailing through and projecting our thoughts and having such a really fabulous easy time. But then what happens is we have material karma, little bits of karma in our spine and material desires and things that we just sort of haven't quite finished. And the way Yogananda describes it is that suddenly we disappear from the astral world because those things have sucked us and they've sucked us in. He describes it in different ways at different times, you know, about how actually conscious that is. But essentially, you're in the astral world, your karmic need to incarnate just grabs you and you just get sucked out of the astral world and you find yourself in some mother's womb and then you find yourself being born and then you gradually come awake again yogananda describes being an infant and being conscious of all the dimensions at the same time some infants are some aren't and we kind of gradually wake up most of us don't remember our infancy we, we just have a certain point when we get awake enough and fixed enough on this world that we begin to remember it I have this memory of this pink teddy bear with this plastic nose, and I can remember chewing that little nose, falling asleep. 
I believe that must be my earliest memory because you'd have to be pretty small to be sitting there chewing the nose of your teddy bear to go to sleep. But I, that's like my first memory. I'll the nose of that. <laughs> you know, I don't remember anything else because you kind of lose consciousness between, right? Okay, now most of us are, not most of us, all of us, are compelled to reincarnate. There's, there's karma in our chakras that cannot be fulfilled without a physical body, all the unfulfilled desires, all the unlearned lessons. And so sooner or later, we just are dragged onto the other side. So we're here now, and there's this big wall between us and the rest of reality. And most of the time, we get born, and we start experiencing the world, right? Because all our senses point outward. You lie on your back as a little infant, and you start grabbing at things like this, and you watch your feet, and you sort of grab your feet, you know. But this whole thing, it's all like this. And then you start crawling, and you start chasing, and you start putting it in your mouth, you know, just basically, you're just drinking it in like this, right? And more or less, we've got our back to the wall. And if we're not literally physically like that, it's behind us. We don't know it's there. And, and many people just get themselves going, and as soon as they get themselves going, whoom, they go as far as they can away from where they came from, into matter, into money, into sensuality, into pleasures here and security there and just the whole game and we never think twice about it okay the goal of life i mean a lot of us run really hard that direction and then we hit the wall right and then we're lying there and we begin to think maybe that there's some fundamental mistake here and, and so we turn around and we start like trying to figure out like what's on the other side of that wall and there's this like sense that maybe something, so we close our eyes and we try to meditate and the whole story starts over. Okay, so essentially what happens to an avatar, number one, is he's not, he's not dragged across the wall. He just very consciously sort of climbs up and jumps over. He says, okay, time to incarnate. He goes completely willingly. This is Christ called it. I, he said, I alone am born without sin, is how he put it. But what he meant was he didn't have any karma. Nothing compelled him to be born. All of you were born with sin, he said. Sin is a word for ignorance, which is a word for karma. Okay, you all had a reason that you had to come. I didn't. I came freely, right? But he came nonetheless. He got all the way into a physical body, and he really lived the human life, just like Yogananda did. But when an avatar comes, as soon as they get over the wall, they turn around and they try to get back through the wall because they don't have to go through the whole cycle that all the rest of us go of crashing and burning and getting so confused until we're just so battered that it begins to occur to us that maybe we should do something else. As soon as they get over the wall, they just try to go back through the wall. And more than that, they try to say, look, this is what you're supposed to do, see? You get born in the human body, you have to deal with all of this, but use it to get back through the wall. Watching? Are you watching? You know, like this, right? But nonetheless, they're all the way over here in the human body, and they have to play the game out. They play the game out of what do you do when you get in the human body to get back in touch with everything, with the spirit that you left behind. So they do play it out, the process of getting through, but the difference is they're never, ever, ever, not for one second, confused about why they're here. And they, they just never lose... And in a certain sense, it's also true that they are really... But what I was saying is that they never, ever, ever forget what the purpose is. Oh, and I was starting to say they're, they're simultaneously aware, but only... Swami says, an avatar lives his life like a person watching a movie they enjoyed for the second time. 
You know, if you're going to a movie you've seen before, you don't just sit there and say, well, now he's about to do this, and then he's going to do that, and after he does that, oh, my word, he's going to do this, you know. You just, like, <laughs> because you love the movie, and so you're just, you, you kind of, like, put out of your mind where it's going, and you just kind of go with the whole story. And so that's, that's their consciousness. Now, having said all of that, none of us have a clue as to what an avatar's consciousness is really like, but this little story kind of satisfies your brain about how you think about it. And then the other thing which is important to realize, very strongly related to what I was saying about Divine Mother and all of that, is as Swamiji describes it, as soon as the avatar incarnates, he's bound not by his own karma, but he's bound by the, the, mission, the karma of the times, in other words, the mission he's chosen to take on. He's also bound by the karma of his disciples, which is that he's here in order to serve the needs of those who are incarnated at the same time, and he has to act within the, what they need. You know, Jesus' uh, incredibly dramatic crucifixion and so on was, was, it was a necessary part of serving all those who were there, not merely just the ages, but even literally just those who were there. And so the master has to work within that, within that reality. You see that a lot in Yogananda's life in the present extraordinary confusion between Ananda and SRF, and SRF is the organization he founded, and these are the disciples that were with him. But it's still, it's just, he couldn't make something happen beyond the karma of the group that was there to be with him. And it was their karma to be with him, and it was his karma to have to work with them. So, so it doesn't come into neat little packages. You know, just because he was self-realized and clear doesn't mean that all of these Difficulties will be avoided because he also came for those disciples. Does that make sense? So when you read his story about, you know, this, you know, this desperate desire for God, he really had it because he was in a human body. And the state of consciousness within a human body is this desperate longing for divine union. And so even though on one hand he, maybe he could have had it, nonetheless he was having a human experience. And that was one of intense loneliness for the divine. And so he showed us how we have to live it out and the magnitude it has to reach um, for us to be able to become free. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Um, Barbara also pointed out in the first chapter how Yogananda, the first sentence, the Yogananda starts out with India. Of course, he was born in India, which is no accident. And he talks about the Indian culture as being the um, uh, custodians of eternal truth. And this has always been the characteristic of Indian culture, not merely of human nature, but the characteristic of Indian culture has always been defined by this search for eternal truth. And Yogananda's life ended with India also. You know, his last moments, of the last moments of his life was reciting a poem that he'd written in praise of India. And as soon as he finished the poem, he breathed out and he fell down and he died. He stopped his heart and he died. So it's sort of like the first line of his autobiography, the last words out of his mouth are about India. And yet his life was lived in America. And in other places, not in this book, or maybe it is in this book, in fact, he talks about how the, the future, the Dwapara Yuga future, is the union between India and America. And he says the day will come, not without a great deal of intervening struggle and strife and conflict, when India and America will unite, and that will be the future of, of, of the planet because it's the material um, ingenuity and practical power of, of the American culture and the spiritual um, 
depth and devotion of the Indian culture, the two coming together. Now bear in mind, a a nation and national characteristics, and he he goes through here talking about various characteristics, such and so is an attitude of the French, typical of the French, and so on. Um, These nations are repositories of of, uh, attitudes, because of course, different souls go in and out. You're not eternally French or eternally German or anything like that. It's just a vibration that the soul may need to be in and will come into it. And then you'll go away, you'll finish with your German incarnation and you'll go and be a Spaniard and then you'll go and be a Hawaiian. And, but, but somebody else will need to be a German, so they'll, just, they'll always be Germans, you know? Until it served its purpose, like the Polynesian culture or something, which has now been obliterated because it just doesn't, or the American Native Americans. I mean, there's so many cultures, as we shift from Kali to Dwapara, are all obliterated because that pattern isn't required for Dwapara anymore, right? And so it's just, it's just fascinating to see how the whole, and again, how the hints are sort of all through uh, the master's life. Nothing happens by accident in the life of a master. Well, any questions or comments or thoughts? Have you thought of your questions, Stephanie? Okay. Is there anything that you want me to particularly address, or shall I barrel on? I haven't talked that much about Swami Pranabhananda, so I can. Oh, I loved the part I loved about Pranabhananda um, is as he there's one part that I particularly enjoyed in that you have, you have this whole story again. You have this incredible picture of, of Yogananda's boyhood. You know, with his father was very well to do. He tells that story about forty-two thousand rupees which is really a lot of rupees. Um, he, he left a pension for one of his devotees of 70 rupees a month. And that, at the time that he gave her, was plenty of money for her to live on and support her family. So 42,000 rupees is just a stunningly large amount of money. And just coming back to that for a minute, you know you have Yogananda's father with this extreme level of austerity. You know, after his mother died, after his wife died, it was 40 years, he never had any assistance. And that extraordinary devotion, service to me, ended with the death of your mother. He said, no woman will ever serve me again after her, not even a hired nurse, no one. And they just would retire to his bedroom in Dukriya. He said, his sons bought motorcycles and automobiles, but father always rode the streetcar. Made do with one pair of shoes until it fell apart. It's just a completely just different consciousness. Bearing in mind, it isn't America either. And as Swamiji said, when he bought a new car after having driven this really old junker for a long time, he said, in India they would respect me for driving this old car. He said, in America they think there must be something wrong with Ananda, or else why would I be driving such a junker? You know, and, and Master himself lived at a moderate level. He spoke of lady simplicity rather than lady poverty, but yet he gives this example of his own father with all this wealth in his hands. But then you have this picture of this young boy who wants to take a trip, Father gives him the railroad ticket. You also can feel how very safe the whole culture was there. One of um, Devi Mukherjee, who's a man that we visit with in India, he wrote the book Shaped by Saints. He's married to the daughter of Tulsi Bosch, and Tulsi Bosch was Yogananda's boyhood friend. So through Devi, knowing as a grown man, the, the man who was Yogananda's best friend as a boy, there's a lot of stories that come through. And one thing he mentions, he says that he would, he would travel a lot with Yogananda on the, the railroad passes from his father. And he said, and whenever they would get down in a new town, in a very short time, Yogananda would have attracted to him a whole band of boys. 
you know, because he was very charismatic even as a child, and, and there was a, a, an innocence and a freedom to the culture at that time. And so he would just sort of be in the town, and then pretty soon people would find him, children would find him, and there would always be some sort of band of children going along when they'd go on these adventures. Yogananda doesn't mention it here, and he doesn't mention the companion. But nonetheless, his father sends him off to meet this great saint to have this darshan, and, and this is where Pranabhananda calls him Choto Mahashaya. As Master says, little sir, but it was little great one. Ah, great soul in a small body, is what he's really saying to him. And then Yogananda plays out and tells the marvelous story. You know, and he's very exact in all the ways in which he verifies the miracle. You know, right from the beginning of this book, Yogananda, who wrote this book for Westerners, is really, I think the modern phrase is trying to blow our minds. Right? I mean, he just, he doesn't want us for a minute to really sort of just think that this is any kind of an ordinary story. So here we are in the third chapter. And he's very, you know, he builds his case very carefully. I was sitting there. I saw the sandals. I never left. There was no one around. Nobody came in. You know, just unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So he just tells the story about this saint who just very casually needed to communicate with someone. So he bilocated and went and got the other guy and brought him in. You know, it's very efficient. <laughs> Swami tells the story about sometimes how more primitive peoples are much more intuitive because they're not so distracted. People who live in simpler cultures or even less sophisticated have a lot more animal kind of instincts and powers. And he talks about, Swami mentions this couple, it was either in Bali or some, or Fiji maybe. And he said this woman's husband went to the village, went into the, the center of the town to get something. And she forgot to tell him to pick up something else, so she went down to the tree at the base of the lane and through the tree communicated with her husband. And when Swami, I think that Swami tells us he's had this experience or is this master's story? I think it's Swami's. He sort of, when he expressed puzzlement, she said, well, you see, we're very poor. We can't afford a telephone. (laughs) (laughs) It was just sort of like, but you know, she just somehow, it worked. There was this interconnectedness of the universe that, people who are not as egocentric as we are can still feel. Then you tra- you go through this stage of egotism and you come out on the side where Pranabhananda is on. And there's the, just that, you know, Yogananda plays out the dialogue for us. How could you have done this? You know, how could you possibly do this? You were sitting right here. And then Pranabhananda expresses surprise. Why should you be surprised? He said, this is a universe, this is a perfectly natural thing to have happen. And, and this is a dialogue that Yogananda is trying to get all of us to have, knowing that our first reaction is going to be one of great excitement. So he has Pranabhananda speak through his book and say to us, what are you so excited about? You know, the great mystery is that you don't know this. Not that you do or not that somebody does. And he's wanting us, again, just to really accept that, that, that the life that's described by the great masters, that's the natural life. You know, our separation from all these things, this is the unnatural life. And the more that we can just relax even our minds into that very concept. So instead of thinking that this is shocking, we think this is just perfectly natural. I know all of us grow into that. I have to confess, which some of you know, I didn't finish autobiography when I first picked it up. I don't remember exactly when it was. I must have been 19 or 20. I was studying the spiritual teachings, but I was very, very mental. And sort of knowing what I was like and reading it now, I can see why I couldn't read it. It's just, I just needed something that was just uh, 
very impersonal and very dry and very just sort of intellectual. And, you know, this business of throwing yourself under the train because your mother has died. And I just, and, the, you know, Lahiri Mahashaya in the wheat field and flashes of light and Asiatic cholera miraculously cured and Pranabhananda with being in two places, it was just way too much for me. I just didn't know what to do with it, so I just closed it and put it away. Years later, I met Swami Kriyananda, found out he was a disciple of Yogananda, so I went back and got the book, and I thought, wow, this is great. You know, like, what was the big story here? What was I so upset about? Because somewhere in between, you know, all of these things become natural to us. And so everything that we read in this book that seems too much for us, is a really, it's a good exercise. Just imagine what life would be like if this were natural to me. Because this is natural to us, much more natural. Let us not be excited and alarmed. Let us just take it as, as God's given world. All right? Now, any comments or thoughts? If not, that will be the end of our story. Okay, that's the end of the story. Over here, we have a list of the chapters week by week if you don't have one, and also the notes for the chapters for the following week if you want. Okay. Okay.